but God sent an angel to men seeking God in the temple. But here, he's not, it doesn't take place in the temple. It takes place in this city named Nazareth. All right, Nazareth today is a big city. It's got, a, I think, 150,000 people. It's a bustling city in Israel. But um, at the time, Nazareth, according to scholars, was a village of about 100 people. So it's like, it's nowhere. It's, it's not like coming to St. Louis. It's like going to I don't know, some, like, in some little town out in, you know, in rural Missouri or North Dakota, wherever. And um, right, so God is seeking out Mary rather than the other way around. All right. And he goes to um, a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. So that's important because God promised that um, he would, um, that David would have a son who would rule forever, have an eternal throne. All right, a thousand, 900 years have passed since that promise, and the, it doesn't look like it's going to be fulfilled. The line of David has lost all its importance. The line of David ruled Israel for about 300 years, and then there was the Babylonian exile. And that, those were the last kings from the line of David who ruled over Israel. And then for, this is now 600 years after there are no more Davidic kings. There still is um, a line of David, though. In other words, it's still remembered in Israel who's from the line of David, and Joseph is of the line of David. But Joseph is not you know, a famous figure um, who lives in a palace, but he lives in this tiny little village, and he's a carpenter or craftsman. All right? Um, and he's of David's line. And um, he's betrothed to um, a woman, a virgin named Mary. Somebody say something about Jewish wedding. So Jewish wedding customs are different than ours. Um, in Jewish um, customs at this time, there would be um, what Luke calls a betrothal, which was really the marriage, but it was at a young age. So girls would be about 13 or 14, um, something like that, when they would be what we would might call betrothed, but it was actually a, a wedding contract. But because the woman was young, you know, a teenager, um, there was a time wait of about a year before she would then go into her husband's house and begin marital cohabitation. So this is happening in between those two moments. Right? So Mary is actually already Joseph's wife, legally, but she hasn't yet come into his house, and so she's still a virgin. Right? So that was the way that Jewish customs worked at this time. So she's actually, it's not as if she's an unwed woman. Right? She's married to Joseph, but um, they haven't begun marital cohabitation, and she's a virgin. Okay, the angel comes to her and says, Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with you. Um, and that's interesting. So I'm sorry, there's tons. I'm going to take too long, but I can't resist. Um, the hail, in, is, there are lots of places in the Old Testament where um, that word hail really means rejoice. Rejoice, daughter of Zion, for your king is in your midst. So there are many texts like that from the prophets of Israel. And so the angel Gabriel is saying the exact same thing. Hail, right, and meaning rejoice. And then instead of saying, so I pray the Hail Mary a lot, right? Catholics do that. And that's not actually here, right? So it's not as if the angel said Hail Mary. The angel said, hey, hail full of grace, as if that were her name. So that's important. So, that's, so in the Bible, the way someone is addressed indicates their identity. And so the angel is addressing Mary as you who are full of grace. 
This is translated differently in different Bibles, sometimes highly favored one. Um, I think full of grace, though, captures the meaning of the Greek text. And I can't go into that. But the Greek text can't be directly translated because it uses a form of speech that we can't. It's a, a perfect participle. Literally, it means you who have been fully graced. All right? Um, the Lord is with you. That's, that's the greeting. And she's troubled at this. And we're, I mean, generally, in, in the Bible, people are troubled when an angel comes to them. Um, and she um, is troubled, um, perhaps because um, the greeting seemed um, like a praise. Um, but in any case, um, skip on here. Yeah. Do not be afraid, Mary, right, the angel responds, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. So Jesus, we said last time, means God saves. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. So if you remember last time we saw there was, um, I think I did it here, um, a prophecy from 2 Samuel where God um, promised to David that his son would reign forever over the um, tribes of Israel and that he would be a son to me and I would be father to him. And so the angel is um, referring to that prophecy. Um, he will be um, son of the Most High and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. In other words, Gabriel is saying that the prophecy that David received 930 years earlier was going to be fulfilled in her. All right? And of his kingdom, there shall be no end. Now, most people, when they get a promise like this, they would probably think, oh, great, or something like that. But Mary poses a question which is very puzzling. She said to the angel, how shall this be since I do not know man? That's puzzling because she's, we just saw she's actually married. She hasn't yet begun the marital cohabitation, but presumably that would be a few months away. And so her question doesn't seem to make sense. It's not as if she's doubting. So that was the case with Zechariah. When the angel came to Zechariah and said, your wife will be conceived and bear a son, um, Zachariah said, show me a sign. I don't believe it. <laughs> show me a sign that I might know that. That's not what Mary's doing here. She's not saying, show me a sign that I'll know that. But she's asking, how is it going to be since I don't know man? Right? And that's curious because she's married. And she should know um, that she's going to know Joseph. Um, sorry. Yeah, how shall this be? And so the fathers of the church reflecting on it. So there's no, it's not as if the church imposes something here. But it seems as if Mary's question is indicating that she's made some kind of promise not to have um, intercourse with Joseph. And in, today, that's a, not an uncommon thing. That would be a, um, a promise of a virginity that nuns make and a promise of celibacy that priests, for example, make. Um, in ancient Israel, there weren't um, convents of nuns. Um, and so this would be a unique or unusual kind of thing. And so um, 
St. Ambrose um, says, why did she say this? She wouldn't have said it unless she'd already vowed her virginity to God. And um, Augustine likewise. Um, and John Paul II um, interprets it in a similar way. Mary receives the angel's message in a different situation from Zachariah and Elizabeth, or think of Sarah and Abraham much earlier. In both of those cases, Zachariah and Elizabeth and Sarah and Abraham, the problem was that um, the woman was too old and barren, right? In other words, naturally infertile. Mary doesn't have that problem. She has a different problem, and it seems that she has um, made some kind of promise of, um, of virginity. It could have been that, that but, but if she's married to Joseph and she's going to enter his house in a couple months, it doesn't seem to make sense, right? Yes, she hasn't in the past, but in the ordinary course of things, she would come together with Joseph not too far in the future, right? And it would be natural to interpret the angel's words in that way, but she doesn't. All right, well, let's look what happens next. The angel answers her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. In other words, the angel um, answers her question by saying, you won't conceive in the normal way, right? It won't be through St. Joseph. It'll be um, a virginal conception. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. In other words, the angel is saying, this won't happen in the natural way of human generation, but it'll be a, um, a unique miracle that in fact had never occurred before that and would never occur again. Mary's the only one who's conceived virginally a child. Several people have been infertile and miraculously conceived, right? That would be Sarah, Hannah, and Elizabeth, and I'm sure there are others not named in scripture, all right? But no one before or after ever virginally conceived, right? And that was a miracle that God wanted reserved to um, God made man, right? For this one occasion, okay? So the child be born will be called holy, the son of God. And let me say something about that. We, at baptism, we become sons and daughters of God. So this might be ambiguous. Somebody might think, well, Mary's son will be a son of God. But the angel says, will be the son of God. Right? And that can't apply to any of us. None of us are the son of God. That would mean the natural son. We are sons and daughters of God in the plural, adopted sons and daughters adopted actually into Christ and his church at our baptism. All right, so, so this son of Mary is the son of God. And then he does, the angel does give her a sign. And the sign is your kinswoman, Elizabeth, in her old age, has just conceived a son. This is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. And Mary said, behold, I am the handmaiden of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Right, so that's, that's the text that Luke gives us. And so it's, there are tons of really interesting things here. But one really interesting thing is at the end, um, 
God, the angel is, and God through the angel is waiting for a response from Mary. And she gives that response. And that is, behold, I am the handmaid. That means I'm the servant of the Lord. Um, let it be, let it be done to me according to your word. Right? In other words, Mary's giving her consent. She's saying yes. And so our first really odd thing, if you think about it, is God wants to become man. All right, God is all-powerful. Right? God is omnipotent. He wants to enter into human history to redeem us and to enter into relationship with each one of us. And what does he do? He asks permission before he enters human history. And he, but he only asks one person's permission, the mother of whom he would be conceived. And so he's asked her permission in the place of each one of us. So think about this. I think very often when Protestants wonder why Catholics think we should have a relationship with Mary, I don't think we maybe think about this enough. If she could have said no, and we would not have had a savior. And so she's answering in our place. Right? And she's done something that affects us. Obviously, Jesus is doing something even more that affects us, God becoming man. But she's doing something because she was asked to consent freely. Right? So that's just, and what it really says something about God, that God doesn't, he's not a God who wants submission. He's a God who wants permission. That seems crazy to us. In other words, he wants permission to enter into relationship with us and love us to death. And he asks Mary's consent. But he prepared her, right? So it wasn't if he just kind of randomly picked this person. He's prepared her by the fact that she was born in Israel, right? So she's part of the chosen people. But he prepared her in another way that we'll talk about in a few minutes. And we call it the Immaculate Conception. He prepared her by giving her unique graces and filling her with grace, as we saw at the beginning of the dialogue, hail full of grace. All right, so it's not you know, random, but um, there's a real um, consent. So the fathers of the church often say that, um, yeah, I love, this is one of my favorite paintings. Um, it's of the Annunciation. The painter obviously isn't thinking that that's where it took place. Right, in some big Gothic cathedral. But um, he's doing it to show that this is the, um, the birth of the church when she says yes. And there's a, you, can, you can't really see it here. But the angel is saying, Ave Maria, so Hail Mary. And she's answering back. Um, uh, you can't really see it. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. And if you come up here and look at it, it's written upside down, Mary's line, because she's speaking to God. Right? kind of writes it up for God. Uh, anyway, and so um, the point being, Mary conceived in her heart before she conceived biologically. In other words, he wanted her spiritual, yes. Uh, let's think for a second. Would this have been difficult to say yes to? Why, why would it have been difficult? Anybody want to? Okay. Okay, so there could be, she, she probably knows something about the Messiah being the suffering servant and that he will have a tragic end, right? So she probably knows that. Um, and so, yes, that part of her saying yes is consenting to a play a part in what's not going to be, um, yeah, uh, an easy path. But just 
Another thing we could think about is, would it be hard to believe? And, okay, all right, there, there's a, yes, there's another problem there, right? She's gonna be found pregnant before she's been brought into Joseph's house. And so there's gonna be a scandal element. Yeah, so both of these things, but I think just even more powerful, just think about this. And we, we were just talking about kind of the paradox of the incarnation. God becomes man. And it's one thing, so hopefully in this room, we all believe God has become man, but probably we do it more or less in a blackboard kind of way. What I mean by that is in an abstract way. But Mary had to believe it in a different way, in a totally concrete way. Because she had to believe this was going to happen, not just in, I don't know, in some other world, but this was going to happen in her, then and there, in her womb, that God Almighty, who made right, heaven and earth, would become dependent on her body, right, being a fetus in her womb, that he would, God, um, who is omnipotent, would become weak and dependent and small and tiny and defenseless, and we could go on and on in her body then and there. In, in general, faith is harder to the degree that we make it concrete and personal. And very often we don't make it concrete enough. Um, and that's why we always have to apply it to our lives. But anyway, so Mary's yes is, we could say, the greatest act of faith of human history. Greater than Sarah and Abraham's act of faith, right? Sarah and Abraham were believing in a double kind of miracle that um, she was too old and she was um, barren before that and, and that she would conceive. But she would conceive a human being who's a mere human being. It's true, she also, they would have believed something else that um, they would become a great nation through, um, through Isaac and that all nations would be blessed. And so Abraham and Sarah had to believe a kind of double thing that they would, she would miraculously conceive Sarah and that in their um, offspring, all nations would be blessed. And so that's already believing in the Messiah. But Mary's believing that in her, right? That this would happen in her then and there. All right, so we can say the greatest act of faith, greater. so we call Abraham our father in faith, right? Precisely because he believed at what the angel told him about conceiving a son, right? Even though Sarah was too old and, and barren. But Mary is more our mother in faith than Abraham. Does that make sense? And so her faith is our model. Jesus is not the model of faith in the same way that Mary is. That might sound crazy because we said the last time, I went through much too quick. We'll come back to it next week. Jesus says that he sees the Father. He doesn't ever say that he believes. Um, so Jesus had a knowledge of his Father that we don't directly, right? We, have to believe it on faith. And Mary likewise. Right? So of all the people who have ever believed, Mary has believed most. Okay. 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 So when Mary said yes, two miracles took place at this simultaneously. So the one miracle is that she virginally conceived without, right, without St. Joseph, without a man. And when I was first studying theology, I was taking a class um, on Christology at this 
local seminary where I study. I don't want to, I'm going to scandalize you. But um, sometimes you have to, so sometimes you should know theologians can say some crazy things. And so I had a professor say a crazy thing that, um, that this was impossible. Where would you get, you know, the, the chromosome from? Or, and the, how could you have a virginal conception? Well, the fact is, I mean, God made the world out of nothing. He can um, make up for what's ever lacking in his creatures. So there's nothing at all difficult for God about um, having Mary virginally conceive, right? God can simply supply whatever is lacking from Joseph's part, right? But that's not the major miracle that's happening here, right? What's the bigger miracle? Who is she conceiving? God. That's the bigger miracle, right? By how much? By like um, infinity. Um, so two miracles, she virginally conceives. And who does she virginally conceive? God made man. Right? And the two miracles happen together, the virginal conception pointing, being a kind of miracle that points to the bigger miracle, the identity of the one she conceived, the son of God, right? the eternal son of God. Questions on that? Right? This, so it shouldn't be difficult to believe this because this isn't hard for God. What's difficult to believe is that that same son of God would want to be crucified. Right? That's harder to believe, that God who's omnipotent would want to end up on the cross. But that he could make a virgin pregnant, that's, all he has to do is say, let it be. But it's interesting, he wanted her to say that first. Right? Let it be done unto me. Okay, let's look at the questions on that so far. Uh-huh, Ashley? I guess the pledging yourself to be a virgin, like, I guess there's no way to know, but like, how did that work with Joseph? Okay, no, fantastic. No, it wasn't a common thing, but we do know that in Israel, there actually were um, men who did this, and they were called the Essenes. And so there's a, you might, might have heard the Dead Sea Scrolls from a place right by the Dead Sea called Qumran. And that was actually a community of celibate men who made a um, um, <clears throat> promise of celibacy not to have um, relations with their wives for a religious reason um, to be in ritual purity. And it's not exactly, so I'm not saying that um, Joseph was one of these Essenes. But um, there are connections. But in any case, what's unusual is that it be a married couple doing this. Um, and in the history of the church, there are, it's never, obviously, that's not normally why you get married. But there have been cases of couples who um, um, discern that that's God's will for them. Um, and um, and it, it makes sense here. Why is that? Because God, in fact, wanted both things from Mary. The divine plan was both that she get married and that she remain a virgin. So that's why it makes sense that he would inspire that idea in her. And he would have to likewise inspire it into Joseph, right? In marriage, you can't just simply say one spouse, oh, I think, you know, we're going to be celibate from now on or not have, right? That, 
That's not how, right? It's got to be by mutual consent. And so we have to think that St. Joseph likewise consented to this and never had sexual relations with Mary. And in fact, we as Catholics, we have to hold that. Right? That's part of what it means when we say the Virgin Mary, that she never had relations with Joseph. Mm -hmm. It doesn't directly say that, right? And so th that's a great question. Um, and that's something that Protestants very often um, will raise as an objection, because in the Gospels, we actually hear the, what seems to be the opposite, that there are other brothers and sisters of Jesus. Um, and the way we should think about that, though, is that they're actually cousins. Um, so this is not directly answering your question, so just hold that question for a minute. Um, so ancient Hebrew actually doesn't have a word for cousins different from um, brothers and sisters. The word brother and sister is simply used um, both for nuclear family and for the more extended family. And that's actually common for more traditional societies. We live in a society in which the principal thing is the nuclear family, right, in the one family house. But most cultures in the world, in history, and especially, and certainly Israel at the time of Jesus, weren't, didn't live like that. It was the extended family was the principal thing. And so there's not a different word used. I've had students come from Africa and China, and they tell me that in their, um, where they grew up, it was the same, and even India, parts of India. Um, so anyway, that, that the reason, um, so we don't think that those are actually brothers and sisters from Mary and Joseph. And here's a second reason why, and it's true, it doesn't say this in scripture, but um, the reason is, in ancient Israel, there was a strong awareness of the difference between something that's separated for God, called sacred, and what is for everyday use, called profane. But profane, when we hear that word, it might sound negative, but that's, it's not meant to have a negative meaning. Just simply here, let's take an example. This is profane, not that coffee is bad. It's just that this is not a sacred vessel, but there are sacred vessels for church, and that's what is used for the Eucharist. And you can't have lunch in a Eucharistic vessel because it's separated out, it's consecrated for God. And the reason is because, and I'll talk about this later when we look at the Eucharist, because we believe that what actually is in the chalice is the blood of Christ. And therefore, if Jesus' blood is in a chalice, I'm not gonna put lemonade in that same chalice, right? It's separated out. All right, Mary and, even if they hadn't made that agreement beforehand, certainly they, after, They've given, after, if Mary knows, right? So Mary and Joseph know what's happened, right? Because the angel explained it to Mary. And so they know that Mary's womb is the holiest place in the universe. The holiest place that ever will be. Holier than the Holy of Holies in the temple. In the temple in Jerusalem, there was a place called the Holy of Holies and nobody could enter it. It was a, a, a cubic room, small room, that had the Ark of the Covenant originally and nothing more. And only the high priest could go in once a year, prostrate with the blood of sacrifice. Um, and, um, and if anyone else went into that room, they would be stoned, right? It would be, and the reason is because that was separated for God. All right, that was just a symbol because the Ark of the Covenant had dead things. It had the tablets of the law, which were tablets of stone, right? In which God wrote the 10 commandments. And it had um, a jar of the manna in the desert. 
and it had a stick, which was the rod of Aaron, showing that the priesthood was in the line of Aaron. That was what in the, was in the Ark of the Covenant. After the destruction of the first temple, that was hidden too well by the prophet Jeremiah and lost. And so in the second temple, the temple was rebuilt, and Jesus was living in the time of the second temple, the rebuilt temple, there was no Ark of the Covenant. It was just an empty room. But nevertheless, it was the holy place, and only the high priest could enter once a year. All right, so Israel had this sense of God's place is reserved for God alone. All right, what would Mary and Joseph have thought about Mary's womb? The holiest place in the universe, far holier than the Holy of Holies in the temple, because that just had symbols of what Mary had in reality. Right? And so it makes sense that Mary and Joseph would have respected the consecration of her womb by the Son of God and not have had ordinary children, which are good. Right? It's not that we're not saying that sex is bad. It doesn't have anything to do with it. It's that um, children are very, very good. But the Son of God is different than an ordinary um, human child. Right? And so they would have understood that. And this is, and then so even though scripture doesn't directly say it, it seems to imply the opposite, right? It also says um, Joseph didn't know his wife Mary until after right, Jesus was born. Um, but that until doesn't mean that they came together after that. It just means all that Matthew wants to say is um, they didn't have relations until um, before Jesus was born. Um, let me see if I can draw this. Um, so there's um, Mary's a virgin conceiving and then ever after. Right? So both the church holds both of these things. All right? And yes, it doesn't directly say this in scripture, but in the early um, creeds of the church. So the creeds are um, the, what was said by the newly baptized at their baptism. Right? And um, those of you who are going to be baptized at the Easter Vigil, you likewise will be asked to um, state your faith. And part of that faith is um, Jesus born of the Virgin Mary. Um, and very often her title was Ever Virgin. And so we can see that the early Christians from the first centuries understood that she was a virgin um, always. So Ever Virgin or simply the virgin, right? You wouldn't call someone who had six children the virgin. Um, and so that shows that in the early church, she was understood not to have had other biological children. Um, and if anybody's interested in those brothers and sisters, we can actually find out who their father and mother are. It's Mary of Clopas and Clopas um, would be the, the father and mother of those who are said to be Mary's Brothers and sisters. Uh huh. Um, could you explain how um, the Bible is saying Joseph did not know Mary until after his birth? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so until can, can simply be interpreted in two ways. It can mean that before that, um, something didn't happen, but then it did happen. Or you could use um, simply to say, before that, it didn't happen, and say nothing about what happens after that. St. Jerome, there was a controversy about this question in the fourth century, and the greatest Bible scholar of the ancient church is named St. Jerome. So you probably heard his name. Um, he's the one who translated the Bible um, from Hebrew into Latin. 
called the Vulgate. Anyway, he deals with this question and he goes through the Bible and he can he gives um, places where it, until is used in both senses. Um, so there, I can't remember them offhand, but um, one of them is, I think is about, um, St. Paul says that Jesus will reign until, he, until the end in which he will, um, uh, in which in time everyone will rise. And it's not as if he's gonna stop reigning then. In other words, he's king until then and forever after. Um, so sometimes, maybe that's not a good example, but sometimes um, we can use that word until and, and simply not say anything about what happens afterwards. Uh -huh. But I guess doesn't that, um, if it says Joseph didn't know his life right until after Jesus was born, does that imply that he did know? Like, Jesus... I'm sorry, I'm, I'm butchering the text. Let me read the actual text. It's from Matthew. Yeah, so it's from Matthew 20, chapter 125. But he knew her not until she had born a son, and he called his name Jesus. And a, I think the right way to read this is what Matthew is concerned about is just simply that she's a virgin conceiving. And he's not saying, taking a position at all about what happens afterwards. And that becomes a concern um, later um, of the early Christians in this um, second century, third century, fourth century. Uh-huh. No, no, this is your chance. With your womb in a sacred place, like once Jesus was born, isn't just wherever he is? Sure, wherever he is is a sacred place. But nevertheless, her, as the mother of God, I just don't think it makes sense that she would um, uh, want to have, yeah, not, not that it, you know, contaminates. Obviously, it's a magnificent thing. I am, yeah. Um, my daughter-in-law is pregnant. And yes, so that's a, a magnificent thing. Um, but um, it's that distinction of sacred and profane, um, it would marry, she's the mother of God and that's her role and her identity. Um, so I think that's the better, any, any case, this is an example um, where if you go by scripture alone, it might seem doubtful and confusing. And this is why the Catholic um, method of interpreting um, revelation is by scripture and tradition. And I think you absolutely need tradition here to, um, for this piece, okay? Uh-huh. That's tr true. Okay, okay, okay. I'm reading into it, so there's no doubt that, um, um, yeah, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, et cetera. But nevertheless, there, it seems like the angel is still waiting for something. And that's why the angel says nothing will be impossible for God. What the angel is waiting for is her act of faith and her consent, even though it's not spelled out. So again, this is another case where we need tradition as well as scripture, right? So scripture doesn't spell everything out because it was written by a human author who wasn't thinking of everything and their short accounts. Um,
And you don't have to, um, it's not necessary to, Saying, so in the Catholic tradition, when we interpret a particular passage of scripture, that doesn't mean it has to be interpreted that way. And there's a variety, in other words, there's room for freedom in interpreting scripture in different ways. But when you find something consistently um, interpreted in a certain way by the tradition, you would want to generally hold that. Okay. Great, great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's freedom, but how do you know when you're freedom to interpret something that you stumble into a heresy. Yes. You understand what I'm saying? Right. I, I, and, I wanna, no. right. No, 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 that's a great question. And so what normally happens in the history of the church is that you put something forward as your interpretation and there's a reaction, right? And that's what happened here. So one theologian put forth his interpretation, Mary had other children, right? Because of this reference to brothers and sisters and because of Matthew uses the word until. That that's a heresy, yeah. Because St. Jerome and St. Augustine and a whole bunch of other fathers of the church said, no, that's not right, even though it seems to point to that, and they gave all of these reasons that I was trying to give. And so that's why we say this is something, so that particular question now isn't free, right? So I'm not, so some things are free, and that is I don't have to hold that about um, God waiting for Mary to give consent in as explicit a way as I said it. But one thing that we have to hold is that um, Mary is ever virgin. Um, before and after. Yeah, yeah. And that's not because it's made out explicitly in scripture, but because that's something then that the tradition worked out. And the reason the tradition worked it out is some people challenged it. So that's usually the way it works in the history of the church. The church doesn't settle a question if there's no controversy. But once there begins to be a controversy and um, it's disrupting the unity of the church, the church comes in and says, no, we have to hold this. Right? And that would bind Catholics, even if I think scripture is ambiguous. Does that make sense? And so that's because, I didn't fully explain this earlier, but it's because Catholics go by three things, not just one thing. So very often Protestants go by scripture alone, but Catholics interpret God's revelation with scripture, tradition with a capital T, and the magisterium of the church which sometimes intervenes in questions in a decisive or definitive way. Very often they don't, but sometimes they do, right? And when the church intervenes in a definitive way, then um, the response of a Catholic is, well, who am I, right? Um, I'm not going to oppose what the church puts down here, okay? That's right, yeah. So it's in councils, but it could also be in other documents, a papal bull. And we'll look at that when we look at the church. But yes, normally it's going to be in ecumenical councils. This wasn't a council here. This would be um, a kind of regional conflict that the pope then weighed in on. But it does appear in conciliar um, doctrine later, right? So there's um, Mary said to be ever virgin. From um, the sixth Lateran, from the Lateran Council from the seventh century. All right. Yeah, so my advice though on this is it's not that important ultimately. Um, the question, I don't think, in and of itself, does Mary have other children? 
apart from the reason, what's illuminating is thinking about the reason why it would be fitting that she would remain ever virgin after that. And that has to do with her understanding, her role. And so I think that is important when you look at it like that, right? She would have understood that her womb was the temple of the living God. All right, let's look now at um, another controversial thing, immaculate conception. So what, what we have to hold, so this too is something binding on Catholics, even though it doesn't seem clear in scripture, all right? And that's because there was a controversy about this much later in the second millennium, and it got defined in the 19th century as a dogma of faith. Um, and so, but it makes sense. So I think we should think about it in the same thing. Why would it be fitting or what would be fitting? What would you do um, if you were God and you wanted to become man in, um, uh, from a human mother? It would make sense, I think, to preserve that mother from sin and to give her every grace that would prepare her to, to cooperate. Because she was, that's, that's kind of why I was stressing God wanted her permission, because she was called to cooperate by saying yes. Um, and so it would make sense that God would want to help her to prepare her for that role. And it's not just gonna be that moment of saying yes, but then all for 30 years, who, Jesus is gonna live with Mary and Joseph. And yes, Joseph passed away at a certain time, we don't know when, after he's 12 and before he's 30. And so Mary is, um, Jesus and Mary lived together, right, for a long part of his earthly life. And so she's in most intimate contact with him, nurturing him, et cetera. And so it makes sense that God would want to specially prepare her and prepare in a way more than we are prepared because we don't have that same role. So this is, can be hard for us because we live in an egalitarian society and we think everybody should be equal. And if Mary got a grace, why am I not getting that same grace? But the fact is none of us were chosen by God from eternity to be his mother. And Mary was, and you can only choose one because it's a one-time thing. And so it makes sense that he would give her a preparation that would be unique and different from everybody else's. And what would be unique? Well, the, the thing that um, the church defined is that um, she uniquely was preserved from original sin and the consequences of original sin. Uh, we talked about that a few weeks ago, and we said that the consequences are of two kinds. The most important consequence of original sin is that we come into this world not having intimacy with God or friendship with God. And we need to, and not being his sons and daughters. And we need to get that friendship with God um, from his gift. And that happens ordinarily in baptism, right? So we're holding that Mary got that same gift that we get at our baptism when she was conceived. So she was never lacking um, grace not even when she was in the womb. All right, you might ask, what difference does it make for fetus in the womb, whether they have grace or not? Um, well, it doesn't make a difference in action. Obviously, the baby's gonna develop just the same, but it, it makes a difference um, from this point of view that Mary was never separated from intimacy with God. 
right from the beginning. Lawrence? So, uh, <clears throat> if Jesus was to come from the line of David, mm -hmm. and Mary was born under the law in preparation uh -huh. for the coming of the right. Son, is there a genealogy on Mary? Who was Mary's child? <laughs> Great question. So no, there isn't a genealogy on Mary. That's, so this is a, another curious thing. Um, the two Gospels, Matthew and Luke, give us Joseph's genealogy, and that's all they care about. And neither of them gives us Mary's genealogy. And another surprising thing is that the two genealogies of Joseph don't agree. And um, they basically agree. In other words, they agree that he's from David, but they um, give two different lines from David to um, Joseph. And that's probably explained by the fact that in Israel, you had, I'm sorry, this is going to be a technical thing. In Israel, there was an odd feature of the um, law of Moses that if a, a woman um, didn't have offspring um, and she died without um, continuing the line of her husband, um, that... Um, Someone else would, um, uh, how should I put this? Um, it's called the Leverite marriage. But um, I'm going to mess this up. But the, the short story of it is that in Israel, it wasn't about biological birth, but it was about um, legal birth. And that meant that even though a child wasn't the biological son of his particular father, he would still be counted to his father's line if he didn't have other offspring. And it would be the next of kin who would, their first child would be counted in that way. And that's probably why there are two different genealogies. Um, one making use of that, the other not. We don't know for sure. It's just a curiosity of scripture. But neither one concerns Mary. And that's because in Israel, it was a patriarchal society. And what it counted was the legal birth. And that was through the father. Um, and that was Joseph. And so what mattered to Luke and Matthew was to establish that Joseph has the line of David because, and this is why it's important that Mary and Joseph were married before the Annunciation took place, right? They were, Mary was already Joseph's wife, and so what's conceived in her is counted to Joseph as his father, even though Joseph's not biologically the father, and therefore perhaps David is not biologically the great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. But in Israel, that didn't matter. What mattered was um, not the biological father, but who counted as father under the law, and that would be Joseph. But it's, it's, it's all this great care with David <laughs> okay. to prepare the coming of uh -huh. people for 2,000 yeah. years were set aside on this planet uh -huh. to get ready for the coming of God. And then the genealogy from the specific line of David. Mm -hmm. Where does the great care have been taken from Mary? Oh, no doubt great care was taken from Mary, but it wasn't necessarily, we just simply don't know. Maybe Mary's from the line of David, maybe not. And scripture doesn't tell us, and tradition doesn't tell us. And that's not to say, though, that there wasn't great care. And this is precisely the point. This is a better great care. In other words, great, yes, you're absolutely right. Greater care had to be taken of Mary than of Joseph, because Mary's entering into much greater contact with the Son of God than Joseph is. So Joseph, care was taken because of the line of David. Care was taken of Mary by the Immaculate Conception. That's the Catholic answer. In other words, it was a spiritual care. And I can't answer your question about Mary's genealogy. We know that her, um, yeah, it's likely that she was of the tribe of David because that would very often you married in, in the same family. 
Um, but we also know that her kinswoman, Elizabeth, is from a different tribe, Levi. He's um, the priestly line. So we just simply don't know. Yeah, no, great question. But Okay, so um, Mary um, never was without grace. And then the second consequence of her being free from original sin is something. So we get that back. We have what Mary had, just that she got it from the beginning, and we get it later. But there's a difference, something, two things that Mary has that we don't have. And one of them is that she didn't suffer from what we call concupiscence. Concupiscence being the disordered inclinations of our passions that sometimes just do their own thing and can seduce us into sin. And so Mary would have been free from that like Adam and Eve in the garden. And she's not the only one, Jesus likewise. So Jesus also didn't have concupiscence in that sense. All right? Doesn't mean that, Jesus, that Mary couldn't sin, but what the church holds is that she never did sin. So that's the harder thing. It's one thing to, you know, gotten a special grace when you were conceived in the womb. It's another thing to be faithful to that throughout a whole life, never being unfaithful. So that's actually the hardest thing that we hold about Mary. All the other things are pure gift, right? It's not that hard for Mary, I think, to have remained a virgin after the... Um, it wasn't hard on her part. What was hard was on God's part, right, to make her um, virginally fruitful. But what was um, amazing on Mary's part is the church's belief that she never sinned in her life. So like Jesus, she was human without sin. That's right. But there's a difference. Jesus couldn't sin because he's God made man. And that would be contradictory for God to sin because sin is rebellion against God. Mary could have sinned, but she never did. And she was given a grace to be able to do that, that we are not. All right. So none of us can say, yes, I've lived you know, 64 years and I've never sinned. Um, we, I can't say that in one day. And that's because there can be venial sins, little sins that are not, you know, not serial murder, but still are not exactly what God wants of me and asks of me. Right? And so none of us can live one day, or oh, maybe if I'm in a coma or something. But um, so Mary, for her whole life, that's actually the most beautiful thing about Mary that the church believes. Uh, I understand that the idea of Mary not having Uh huh. Yeah, two things, fantastic. So um, the first is that full of grace, um, and the second is um, a reflection. So this might not seem convincing to us, but the fathers thought about things differently. The fathers made thought about typology, and so they thought about Mary in relation to Eve. So here would be the thought. God gives grace according to the mission. In other words, if God gives us a particular mission, we can count on the grace to accomplish it. I, maybe I won't be faithful and I might squander that grace, but I can count on God giving the grace for what he asked me to do. Right? So if we look at Eve's mission and Mary's mission, Eve's mission was to receive that an original grace and to be faithful with it so it could be passed on to their offspring. So basically her mission was to pass on something that she freely received. And she was equipped for that by being created without original sin. 
um, and without concupiscence. All right. Mary's mission is greater. Does everybody see that? Because she had to cooperate with her son in winning back something that had been lost. And so the fathers of the church speak of Mary as the new Eve. All right, if Mary's the new Eve, and she's got a mission greater than Eve's to be the mother of God and to cooperate with her son, then it makes sense that she should be given a grace not less than Eve. That's the reasoning that the fathers use. All right, and if Eve was conceived without sin, it makes sense that Mary would likewise be. And if Eve didn't have concupiscence before the fall, it makes sense that Mary, because of her special mission, would be preserved from that like Jesus. Okay. Ah, fantastic. So we looked at this a few weeks ago, um, but probably I mean, there are too many things. So um, we shouldn't take Eve's sin as um, a sin brought about by concupiscence of that apple looks really good to eat and it's you know against my diet or something. That's not the kind of thing that it was. It meant something deeper than simply the apple, right? It, or fruit or whatever it was. It meant dominion over good and evil. In other words, what Adam and Eve chose breaking the covenant was wanting to decide good and evil for themselves rather than receiving it from above, from God. That's how the church understands that original sin. So it wasn't concupiscence that led them to that. It was a sin of spiritual pride. So in the garden, there couldn't be a sin of weakness in the sense of it, in the original sin being, say, a sexual sin or a sin of gluttony. But a spiritual sin is exactly what happened, like with Satan, right? Satan also doesn't have concupiscence, but sinned far more gravely than Adam and Eve. And it was a sin of spiritual pride, wanting to take God's place, basically. Um, and so Mary couldn't do a sin of weakness, but she could have done a sin of spiritual pride, but she never did. Okay, great questions. Thank you. Okay, so that's, um, so by Immaculate Conception, we mean she was conceived in that way, but more importantly, she remained without sin throughout her life. So let's look at, so we've already seen this. Uh, so let's look now at the, um, so Mary is Jesus' mother, right? But she's also our mother. So let me talk about that for the remaining time. So this, so what do we mean by this? Um, we learn about this from John's gospel that Mary was at the foot of the cross. So let's put ourselves in the context. So the apostles had trouble, right? Jesus told them that he was going to die, right? That he was going to be crucified and then rise on the third day. And they didn't understand and didn't want to understand and didn't believe and didn't show up, right? Except for one. Who was the only apostle? John, right? John was the only one of the 12 who was there on Calvary. And the Gospels tell us that in addition, there was Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, and a third Mary named Mary of Clopas, who's probably the mother of those brothers and sisters of Jesus. And um, so there was John and the three Marys at the foot of the cross, plus the executioners and the bystanders, etc. Mary Magdalene, wait, hold on, wait, hold on. Yeah. So the Virgin Mary is not Mary Magdalene. 
No, no, yeah. Two. So Mary Magdalene was the disciple that um, Jesus freed from um, a whole series of bad, evil spirits, um, it seems, and, um, and then became his um, disciple, so close of a disciple that he appeared to her first on Easter Sunday to Mary Magdalene. Mary, Jesus' mother, didn't actually go to the tomb the next day because she believed already. That wasn't his mom in the account. That was his disciple. That's right. Mary Magdalene, yeah, disciple with a very different history than Mary. Um, so the Gospels give us Jesus' last words. So here, put yourself in the context. Jesus, we're going to talk about this next time when we look at Jesus' passion. But when someone's being crucified, um, is it easy to speak? What do you think? No. Because your weight is suspended on these wounds. And in order, so people who are crucified die of asphyxiation. And it's because you can't breathe. In order to breathe, you have to pull yourself up. And in Jesus' case, he's nailed to the cross. So he had to pull himself up in order to breathe on the four wounds in his hands and feet. So every word is going to cost him pain. That's important because it shows us the importance. If he wanted to say something while he's being crucified, that must have been important. And so we, the church speaks about seven last words of Jesus from the different gospels. And one of them was to Mary and John. So let's read that. It's from John 19, 26 and 27. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing near, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. All right, who is this disciple? It's actually the author of this gospel, John. But John doesn't give his own name. He speaks about himself, oddly, in the third person as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And the reason why he's doing that here, I think, is because he wants to make a space for other disciples who are us. In other words, we should take Jesus' words as not applying only to John, but to all other beloved disciples. Right? Um, and so what does he do? He says, woman, now that's very odd. right? He should have said, mother, behold your son. But he calls her woman. And again, the church sees that as a reference back to Genesis, um, where we, we saw, uh, was it last time, the first prophecy about the Messiah was... Um, when God said to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman, her, um, your offspring and her offspring. He will crush your head and you will crush his heel. Um, and so it seems that Jesus is making reference to that. Again, you don't have to believe that. That's interpretation. But, um, but what we should believe, I think, is that Jesus, who is he providing for here? Okay, yeah. He's providing for Mary and John, but he's providing a buffalo for us. And so who is he? So you might think, all right, Jesus is dying and um, Mary's a widow, right? And um, it's odd that he would give um, another son to Mary if she had other children. So this is another argument why we don't think that Mary had other sons and daughters because Jesus is providing for her, right? when he says to the disciple, behold your mother. But first, he's providing for John and us, 
right? So the first thing he says is, woman, behold your son. So he's actually giving to John a new mother. But he's not calling him John, but the disciple whom Jesus loved, so that we can put ourselves in there and think that we too are being provided for. Jesus is giving us his mother to be our mother spiritually, right? It doesn't take away the fact that my mom is my physical mother, but it's giving us another mother who's our spiritual mother, a mother who's going to pray for us and going to be as concerned about us as our earthly mother, but more so because she's the perfect mother. Right, we may not have had the perfect mother. Actually, perfect mothers other than Mary don't exist probably. And, um, and so Jesus is providing for all of us by giving us someone who's going to intercede for us in every need that we have, right? If she's been made our mother, um, she would care about us and be praying for all our needs, right? So this is really important in practice. Um, that, um, so we call this, um, yeah, simply Mary's spiritual maternity over the church and over all Christians, and in fact, every human being, because every human being is called um, into relationship with Jesus, right? Everyone's called to be a beloved disciple. Um, yeah, no, that's right. It works both ways. But we're, so think about it from, so um, yes, we are a gift to Mary to be, I mean, more children is always a good thing. Yes, exactly. But you could look at it like this. You're absolutely right. But you could look at it like this. She, um, it was a kind of trade. Um, so Jesus, she had the perfect son. He's crucified, died. And yes, he's going to rise, but he's going to send out of this world. And the trade is she gets John instead of Jesus. And John's not Jesus. All right, John's pretty good. He's an apostle, but he's not Jesus. And then she gets all of us. And yes, we're good, but we're not Jesus. And so it's like um, um, a disadvantageous trade for Mary. Um, she's got a bunch of lepers. Sorry, no offense. I'm one of them. Um, and, but there's something beautiful about that, right? If you're the mother of a handicapped child um, and, and other normal children, which child might the mother love most, right? The handicapped child. So we can think, yes, all right, I'm a handicapped child of Mary. But because of that, she loves me more and will intercede for me more. Yeah, no, good. fantastic. And so this is the, really the foundation for why it is that Catholics think we ought to have devotion to Mary, because she's been made our mother as well as being Jesus' mother. In other words, and she wants to help to form Jesus in us. In other words, she's, here's the idea. Um, Mary's a specialist. She's the specialist in forming Jesus, right? She's the, like the mold. And, um, and it would make sense that God would want us to be helped by her to be configured, to be made like more like unto Jesus. And she's going to intercede for us with the Trinity, with her son, so that we can receive the graces. All right, God doesn't need Mary for interceding. That's, I'm not saying that he needs it. It's that he likes it. God likes intercession. He likes participation. And yes, Jesus knows what we need just as much as Mary. But he wants the graces that he wants to give us to come from a maternal um, care, if that makes sense, to, be, to have her as a kind of mediator. 
So very often Protestants get upset with Jesus is the one mediator. That's true. Jesus is the one perfect mediator being God and man. Mary's not that kind of a mediator. She's a mediator between her son and us. And the reason why she can mediate, to be a mediator, you've got to share in both ends. Jesus is the only one who's both God and man. So he can, he's the only one who can mediate that way. But Mary is Jesus' mother and our mother. And so she can mediate what we need. And we see a beautiful um, image of this in, um, at the wedding of Cana. I'm just going to, I'm running out of time. Let me, so at the wedding, if you know this story, it's from John's gospel, chapter two. And it's the first thing that Jesus does after he's baptized, he goes and fasts for 40 days, comes back. Before he does any other miracles, he goes to this wedding, right? And at the wedding, what happens? So Mary's there and Jesus is there because Mary's there. They run out of wine. Who notices? Mary notices. Mary comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, they don't have any wine. All right, that's typical maternal kind of thing. That's the kind of thing that Mary's doing for us right now. Jesus, Feingold family doesn't have the wine. Um, and um, she's interceding for us like that. And so what does Jesus do? He says, woman, what is this between us? It's not yet my hour. It seems like he's saying no. And what does Mary do? She goes to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And by the way, those are Mary's last words in scripture. That's her legacy, telling us, do whatever he tells you, right? She's not taking Jesus' place. Catholics don't think that Mary is taking Jesus' place. Her role is to tell us to do what Jesus tells us and to help us to do that by interceding for our needs, right? So she goes to tell the servants, do whatever he tells you, being convinced that Jesus just said yes, whereas to us it sounded like he just said no, right? So again, this is that maternal intuition that Mary has. Um, so we can think of her continuing to intercede for all her children in that way. All right, last thing I wanted to do here, I know I've run out of time, is the end of her life. How long did Mary live? We don't know. We know, though, that she lived for about 20 years after Calvary, something more or less. And what was it like, like, like then? We don't know anything. Scripture doesn't tell us anything except that at the day of Pentecost, she was there in the midst of the disciples when the Holy Spirit came down. Right? And so she was already interceding for that. Right? And then we could imagine the rest of her life was simply living um, the Eucharist. And I'll talk more about that later when we look at the, the Eucharist. For in the Eucharist, we believe Jesus becomes present on the altar and we receive him. So Mary would have been receiving that same Jesus that she had received um, decades earlier in her womb. Um, so that would be Mary's life. And at the end of it, and the church, the last mystery of Mary's life is that she was assumed into heaven with her body. So that's, we call that her assumption. So Mary's assumption is the fact that she didn't turn into dust like the rest of us. And again, similar to her son, Jesus didn't turn into dust. Right? He died, he was in the tomb for three days, but he rose. And something similar we believe for Mary. Where is that in scripture? It's not directly in scripture. But there's a line in scripture that refers to it, and that's Revelation chapter 12, where John sees a woman clothed with the sun in heaven. Um, and we interpret that to be Mary. So um, yeah, so Mary got her body back, and she's now with her body in heaven um, with Jesus, who also has his body in heaven. Right, so that's the assumption. Questions on? Uh-huh. Revelation, didn't Mary have also 
died and like had a body in like, yeah, so we do believe she died. Um, that's not part of it. The dogma is that she got assumed, um, whether or not she died, that she didn't stay and turn into dust in the tomb. So it's reasonable to think that she did die, like her son, but that got raised up like her son. But I guess, like, how does the verse support? Um, it doesn't directly. It's not about the moment when it happens. The verse simply shows her um, in... Um, in glory, in heavenly glory, in a way that the other saints aren't. Because the other saints in heaven, St. Peter, pick your favorite St. Francis of Assisi, don't have their bodies yet and won't have them until the general resurrection. All right, it's just again an anticipation. But I think in practice, the most important thing is she's our mother and therefore we should have a relationship with her. There's no one way to do that, right? There's many ways as, as you want, basically. But it's to know that she's concerned with me, and so it would make sense for me to have devotion to her. Not the same devotion we have to Jesus, because he's God, right? But a, a, a devotion greater than to other saints, because she's our mother and Jesus' mother. Is there a certain way to pray and include, like, I guess, include Mary without doing it in the wrong way and inviting something else in? Um, I don't, I'm not sure what you mean by that question. There's, yeah. Okay, yeah. So, I mean, there are ways to do it that's kind of vocal. So, the rosary is a great way. The rosary is, it, it's looking at the mysteries of Jesus' life, but it's asking Mary to help us look at those mysteries of Jesus' life through her eyes, as it were. And so, that would be one way, praying the rosary. Another way is simply, asking for her intercession in the needs of our life, thinking about what she would do. And so buying a house, all right, that's silly, but would Mary like to live in this house? Would she like it that I buy this one or is it too luxurious for her or even maybe the opposite? Um, yeah, 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 because it's a family. In other words, here's the thing. In this family, which is the church, we can pray for one another and we can talk to those who have gone ahead of us. But um, Mary, we should talk to with greater reason because she's our mother. But we don't talk to her as if she's God. We talk to her as if she's our, the mother of God and our mother. All right, and then basically there's a kind of holy freedom for each person in this. All right, and I should let you go. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, we give you thanks, almighty God, for the gift of Mary, who you chose to be your mother and you've made her our mother. May we come to have a relationship with her.